The Beatles are a pretty nice band, and we've got a lot to say. The Beatles are a pretty nice band, talk about them day after day. But we also love the outfit a lot, so are these songs better than your love? The Beatles are a pretty nice band, someday we'll judge if they're fine, oh yeah. Someday we'll judge if they're fine. Maxwell's Silver Hammer. Mal fetched Paul an anvil for this. <laughs> so this song is unintentionally hilarious to me. Uh, like, imagine you're listening to Abbey Road for the first time. It could be okay. ni- 1969, it could be 2023, nice. it doesn't matter. Sure. Track one, Come Together. Wow! All right. Yeah, I'm ready. This is good. Track two, Something. It sure is. Holy moly. This sounds amazing. Yeah, how do you top this? And we haven't even gotten to a Paul song yet. Can't wait for the first one. And then... (laughs) June is quizzical. (laughs) 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 Oh, what? It's not oh, as bad no. as Obladi Oblada, but it's pretty close. It's, you mm-hmm. know, it's a cousin. Whole album sounds somewhat dated with the Moog synthesizer noises, but it's particularly egregious on Maxwell Silver Hammer, at least to me. The bass is annoyingly dopey. <laughs> and the lyrics are pretty damn violent. You know, it reminds me of yeah. Winston Bishop of New Girl. I don't know if I brought this up before. But his pranks would either be comically innocent or go way too far. And Paul's like that with his humor, I think. Yeah, I don't know if you've made that reference before, but um, I've, I've not watched The New Girl, so um, I'm bad with <laughs> It's New I'm Girl. There's television. no... Uh, it's just New Girl. Oh, kind of like how it's just Pixies and not The Pixies? Yeah, that's right. Or... Um, Eagles and not the Eagles. That, that's right. And you only find uh, out if on uh, Wikipedia the T is uh, lowercase on the right before it says Eagles. Let's say, you know, oh, sometimes God. it's the. You know. Anyway, I don't. I don't want to get that wrong because you know, uh, Don Henley is a uh, notoriously litigious. But yeah, I don't like this song either. <laughs> um, mm. I just can't jive with another silly vaudevillian song or. As John has eloquently put it, more granny shit. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say, though, the only thing I do like about it is the Moog hmm. that you don't like. Uh, yeah, it's dated, but it's of its time. Uh, you know, like the violent lyrics, you know, the Moog is very surprising because we haven't gotten it yet in this record in, in this way. Uh, I don't know if it was super common for that sound to be on the average, you know, pop music fan's radar. So it's kind of cool that they're a little bit pioneering here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the MVP on the whole song, though, it is Mal. Right? He took a bad song and made it better. Right. In the Let It Be, <laughs> Let it be film, he calls <laughs> like, I don't know, uh, seemingly out of nowhere, Mal, can you get an anvil? Please. Uh, <laughs> you never see where, you- where he gets it, but we're going to find out. Uh, that yes. mystery is solved today, folks. And and you have to, you know, when, when Paul asks you to do something, you better do it the first time because he's going to be relentless. Yes. It. He's not like John yes. where John will ask for something crazy and you could just go to the pub for a few hours and then say, oh, I couldn't get it. A John would have forgotten about it. That's Correct. Paul's not going to forget. 
Paul is quizzical, but he doesn't forget. Maxwell Silverhammer, a jaunty McCartney pen song about a homicidal maniac, was considered by its author to be a potential Beatles single. Of course. Instead, it ended up as a track on the group's album, Abbey Road. Paul said it was uh, the song was an analogy for when something goes wrong out of the blue, as it so often does, as I was beginning to find out at that time in my life. I wanted something symbolic of that, so to me it was some fictitious character called Maxwell with a silver hammer. I don't know why it was silver, it just sounded better than Maxwell's hammer. It was needed for scanning. We still use that expression even now when something unexpected happens. That's not... I've never used that expression. Nope. Never. I don't know who the we is here. It's the royal we that does not exist, Paul. It's, I think he, it's like Murphy's Law. I, I think he was... Okay, yeah, Murphy's Law is a better title for this stupid song. Do, 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 do. Uh, Jay, can you imagine if we get a copyright infringement on this track? <laughs> Out of all the songs that we talked about, because we sang this one, that's the one. We get Nick but Dome. we've been par- but, but the thing is, Roger, is that we've been like not saying the actual lyrics. We've been doing parodies. So I know. see. So parody this law. Yeah, bird law. Yeah. McCartney, uh, the roots of the song are older than you'd think. On January 1966, while driving to Liverpool, it is Aston Martin because he's James Bond. Uh huh. McCartney heard a version of playwright Alfred Jarry's Ubu Koku. Uh, on BBC Radio. The play was described by the Radio Times as a pataphysical extravaganza and made a deep impression on McCartney. It was staged on July 1966 at the Royal Court Theatre with Max Wall playing the protagonist. McCartney and Jane Asher watched one of the performances, which had seven costumes designed by David Hockney. Just as the name Mitchell may have previously morphed into Michelle, there remains a possibility, even subconsciously, that Max Wall was an antecedent to Maxwell. And sure enough, in the song, he mentions pataphysical, which doesn't really come up otherwise. No. No. George Harrison, not a fan of the song, a crawdaddy. (laughs) He said, sometimes Paul would make us do these really fruity songs. I mean, my God. Maxwell's Silverhammer was so fruity. After a while, we did a good job on it, but when Paul got an idea or an arrangement in his head... But Paul's really right for a 14-year-old audience now, anyhow. I missed his last tour, unfortunately. George said this in 1977. Man. Ringo in 2008. The worst session ever was Maxwell's Silverhammer. It was the worst track we ever had to record. It went on for fucking weeks. I thought it was bad. In fact, <laughs> it was recorded over three days. While John and Yoko were recuperating from a car accident sustained in Scotland. However, they both attended the Abbey Road sessions. So John said, that's Paul's. I hate it. Because all I remember is the track. He made us do it a hundred million times. Remember, John was not there. He did everything yes, to make it. They, they all, but they did rehearse it a lot together. Yeah, sure. He but. did everything to make it into a single, and it never was, and it never could have been. But he put guitar licks on it, and he had somebody hitting iron pieces, and we spent more money on that song than any of them in the whole album, I think. 
In the recollection of engineer Jeff Embrick, Ledin dismissed it as, quote, more of Paul's granny music. So it's for 14-year-olds and grannies alike. Yeah, hitting that... Paul's just bringing the generations together. Hitting that demographic. Literally. Ledin's assessment, however, is somewhat misleading. The song just took just three sessions to record, plus a Moog overdub done alone by Paul some days later. Additionally, it lacked the expensive orchestral overdubs that adored several of the other Abbey Road songs. Paul in Anthology said, They got annoyed because Maxwell's Silverhammer took three days to record. Big deal. I think what Ab- I think they conflated that with Oh, Blood Deal, Wada, which they also hated. I think that's what happened there. But, uh, yeah, any- but, you know, it was also pretty clear from, like, the rehearsals that, like, I think, didn't the rehearsals for that song start on the first day of the, you know, the Let It Be sessions at Twickingham? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, they did, they did play it a lot. Yeah. So maybe they didn't record it, but it was in the ether for a long time, and it was very clear from day one of them rehearsing it that they did not like it, and Paul continued to push it. So it's semantical a little bit. You're right. On July 10th, McCarty added more piano, George Martin played Hammond Oregon, Star banged an anvil, and Harrison recorded a guitar part fed through a rotating Leslie speaker. McCarney also taped more lead vocals and was joined by Harrison and Starr for backing vocals. Jeff Hemricks uh, said to Mark Lewison there was a proper blacksmith's anvil brought to the studio for Ringo to hit. They had it rented from a theatrical agency. So that's sure. where Mal got it from. But... Andrew, while we solve one mystery, we create another because in his book, Jeff Emmerich said that Mal Evans played the anvil. Right. God damn it. So th- and I believe that part. Mm. Jeff Emmerich said... He seemed uh, to be the only one having fun, too, in that, like, <laughs> in that whole time. Paul was like frustrated with the other guys, but Mal's just like with a great grit on his face going, ding, ding. <laughs> He's like, man, I had to go get a, fetch an anvil. I'm going to really go to town on this, you know. Paul was in high spirits. This is Jeff Emmerich from his book, Here, There, and Everywhere. Paul was in high spirits during the early Abbey Road sessions. He even got back into the habit of sliding down the Studio 2 stairway banister when departing in the control room, just as he had done during the very first session back in 1962. That's cute, but dangerous. But he did spend a lot of time working on Maxwell, which irritated George Harrison a bit. One afternoon, okay. they got into a heated argument about it, and I started to think, uh-oh, here we go again. But it died down relatively quickly, and the tension was broken, but it came time to do the anvil overdub on the choruses. There was no thought given to finding a way to approximate the effect. Paul wanted the sound of an anvil being struck, so Mal was dispatched to track one down. I have a clear memory of him dragging it into the studio, struggling under its weight as the rest of us laughed our heads off. Both he and Ringo had a go at hitting it. Ringo simply didn't have the strength to lift the hammer, so Mal ended up playing the part, but he didn't have a drummer's sense of timing, so it took a while to get a successful take. So I guess when he got the anvil for Let It Be, he couldn't keep it. It was rented, and he had to go <laughs> rent it again. He had to get, he'd bring it back. The final words, Silver Hammer Man, featured McCarty, Harrison, and Starr on vocals. They sang the higher notes on the track six, the lower notes on seven, and a mixture of two on eight. So yeah, keep in mind, Abbey Road, uh, the f- first and maybe last album 
with eight tracks that the Beatles did. That's another reason why you said uh, it's the best sounding record. Yes, it's. I mean, it's the most modern too. But you know. Yes. This is the gear that you're going to see on like all these records coming up, like Dark Side of the Moon and anything recorded at Abbey Road. Dark Side of the Moon, never heard of it. McCartney recorded the Moon <laughs> on the tracks four, five, and six. And EMI engineer said Paul did Maxwell using the ribbon, playing it like a violin, and having to find every note, which is a credit to his musical ability. <clears throat> the name of that EMI engineer? Alan Parsons. Ooh. I hear he's a real project to work with. Mm. I call it the Alan Parsons project. <laughs> Your Chicago Bulls. <laughs> Sorry. From North Carolina. Number 23. Mike. Mike Paul McCartney. <laughs> In a taped recording of a band meeting conducted in September 1969, so this was nine months after the Let It Be uh, film, Lennon raised the possibility of individual songwriting responsibilities being split equally between the three of them, three being John, Paul, and George, in the future. In this arrangement, each of the writers would contribute four songs to an album, and Ringo would have the opportunity to contribute two. Wow, two for Ringo. Mark Lewison, the Beatles' story, comments on the exchange that proceeded between the three bandmates. Ringo was not present. Paul responds to the news that George now has equal standing as a composer with John and himself by muttering something mildly provocative. I thought I told this album that George's songs weren't that good, he says, which is a pretty double-edged compliment since the earlier compositions he's implicitly disparaging include Taxman and Wild Baby Guitar Jelly Weeps. There's a nettled rejoinder from George. That's a matter of taste. All down the line, people have liked my songs. John reacts by telling Paul that nobody else in the group dug his Maxwell Silver Hammer, and that it might be a good idea if he gave songs of that kind, which John suggests he probably didn't even dig himself, to outside artists in whom he had an interest. I recorded it, a drowsy Paul says, because I liked it. And I like it. And I like it. In his 69 review of Abbey Road for Rolling Stone, John Mendelssohn wrote Paul McCartney and Ray Davies, our old friend, hey, he's back. are the only two writers in Rock and Roll who could have written Maxwell Silverhammer, a jaunty vaudevillian music hallish celebration wherein Paul, in a rare naughty mood, celebrates the joys of being able to bash in the heads of anyone threatening to bring you down. Paul puts it across perfectly with the coyest imaginable choir boy innocence. Somehow I think Ray Davies would have made it better but less commercial yes yes okay this is my favorite negative review of the song ian mcdonald said that if any single recording shows why the beatles broke up it's Maxwell's silver hammer this ghastly miscalculation of which there are countless equivalents of mccarty's garrulous sequence of solo albums represents by far his worst lapse of taste under the auspices of the beatles Thus, Abbey Road embraces both extremes of McCartney, the clear-minded, sensitive caretaker of the Beatles and You Never Give Your Money and the long, melody, long medley, and the immature egotist who frittered away the group's patience and solidarity on sniggering nonsense like this. Yeah. In, in 1972, the Canadian band The Bells covered Maxwell's Silver Hammer. The version became a hit in Canada. In the 78 film Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, the song was performed by Steve Martin. Of course. Mm. Who portrays, On a banjo? 
Maybe. He portrayed mm-hmm. the character Maxwell Edison. Frankie Lane also covered a song as part of the musical documentary All This in World War II, which featured stock and newsreel footage of the Second World War set to performances of music by the Beatles. Love counts. Zero. There's just a lot of murder. Donuts. Josie Scale, is this song better than your love buddy outfield? <laughs> Hell no. No. Give this a Josie. It's a Josie for me as well. The Beatles are a pretty nice band. Talk about them day after day. But we also love the outfield a lot. So are these songs better than your love? The Beatles are a pretty nice band. Someday we'll judge if they're fine. Oh yeah. Someday we'll judge if they're fine.